I want to share with you in this Christmas this whole idea of hope leads to generosity and the importance of hope and what we put our hope in. It's really interesting when you when you read this story, the account of the birth of Christ in Luke chapter two, we read it with modern eyes. We read it with our own history and understanding. We don't necessarily read it sometimes the way they would read it when they received this. So when this gospel, which is called good news, was sent out, this was this was not just some kind of, oh, yeah, interesting little little gospel, some little letter. This was actually something that was rather seditious. It was something that you could, in some ways, find yourself up for treason because of these lines. Listen to what it says when he puts these two things together in this one kind of story. And you see these implications. It says in chapter two, verse one, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So everyone knew in the empire, the emperor was Caesar Augustus. But here's the things that we don't sometimes realize. We go on and read in verse eight. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. That was a common kind of a herald. Hark the herald angels sing. A herald came and proclaimed this truth. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's the ruler. He's the one to come. And you will find him if you go look for him. He'll be wrapped in, 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 in cloth and in a very interesting place, lying in a manger. And so you hear you have this emperor in Rome and you have the news of one who is born. And this is a proclamation of a king. This is one of those heralded things of not just a ruler who had local implications, nor of a person who had national importance. But this was one of universal worldwide significance. And you have to understand how important this was, because angels were, in a sense, the heralds who were announcing that the empire of the emperor of the whole world, the whole universe was bringing news that. That there was one of universal significance, a ruler above all rulers being born. You see, when an old emperor died in that day, they didn't have, you know, telephones and they didn't have the Internet. And you couldn't tweet or text or blog or do any of that stuff. So when someone would die in one place, news would begin to travel from one town to the next town. And so when an emperor died for his death to be known, so it wouldn't travel without it, you know, getting out ahead of them, they would actually, the power brokers of the day would get together, they would make a proclamation and they would send out as quick as they could to all the cities and towns throughout every province of the entire empire, these heralds. And these heralds would come with the news and they would stand in the market square, that was kind of their internet, their newspaper, and they would make the proclamation. Good news, they would say, a successor is already in place. And as they would go through every province, through every city, and throughout every town, throughout the entire empire, they would, they would be the messenger shouting out, good news, we have an emperor, don't lose hope. Chaos will not ensue, because that was what they'd be afraid of. There's a change, there's something happening. And they would make this announcement, there will be peace on earth. Well, for this news to be announced, while Augustus was still in power, 
issuing decrees to be observed all around the world. This was practically an act of sedition. It was a treasonous proclamation. This is not like in the U.S. where a person decides to candidate and and throw out his campaign while another president is in power. You didn't do that. In fact, to, to show you what a threat this was to the to the world at that time in that area where this announcement was made specifically, one of the persons, King Herod, they called him King of the Jews, Herod the Great, who was commissioned by Rome to oversee this area as their king. When he got wind of the fact that this ruler was born in his area, in his province, in his place, he wanted to find out where this would be. And so he said to guys, when you find it, these wise men, these these scholars of that day, they were astronomers who were watching the stars and reading the books of the history and Daniel, etc. And they came from the east and they showed up and they said, where is this king? And they brought in the people who understood the scriptures and they said it should be here. And they went and they looked and, and Herod said, if you find him, come back. They didn't come back. The angel told them to go a different way. And when Herod found out that they hadn't returned He was so aware of the threat of a ruler being born in his province that he made a decree that every child under two would be killed so that this threat would be removed. We read this little Christmas story and go, oh, big deal, Augustus, you know, issued a decree throughout the whole world. And then there's another king who was born. We don't realize the backdrop behind the story, the story behind the story. So let me add a little more color to this picture, because. This was the kind of life that Jesus grew up in. And so Jesus, when he was probably in his late teens, he worked as a carpenter or a builder or a mason. We're not really sure, but it was in that field of building. He worked with his father and probably at one point worked in a town that was south of Nazareth, a town called Sephoris. And more than likely, when he was working one day in the market square, he heard a herald come with news. And, and this herald probably came with a group of soldiers around them because this town where he was working, Sephoris, was a place where a major revolt took place. Probably just months before that, or it could be even six months or so before that, what had happened was when King Herod at that time died and Herod the Great was passing his throne to the next, in that town of Sephoris, which was not too far from Nazareth, just south of there, this larger town, there was an uprising. And in that uprising, they were going to take power. Now that Herod was out of the, as the king, they wanted their own king over Israel. And Rome came in and they decimated the city. And I'm sure there were some of the builders in that town who were put to death at that time, who maybe joined in that revolt. And scholars believe that possibly Jesus, who worked for his father, Joseph, and his company, Joseph and Sons Builders. You know, because when something major happens in an area, you bring builders in from the different towns. Well, they probably were all there, many of them beginning to rebuild that town. And in that time, as they were rebuilding it, Jesus is there. And here comes a squadron. They bring a squadron because they knew this town had revolted before. So the squadron's probably around him and the guy gets up and he goes, hear ye, hear ye. No, he doesn't say that. That's old English. I'm not really sure what the Romans said. My guess is they said, good news, good news. Listen up. Tiberius Caesar is emperor. Augustus has died. Jesus heard that. And it was in those times when there was a change of rule, especially in tyrannies, that was the potential moment of vulnerability. So when you read this gospel, beginning with the Christmas announcement in Luke 2, and as you sing songs like Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, this was revolutionary. 
And it was an announcement for some people in that land who were under the tyrannous power, enslaved to those foreign to them. It was, a, it was an announcement of great hope. And to some people, it was a threat to the way that they had chosen to live. Now, fast forward that 30 years. And listen to another herald named John the Baptist who comes in as we sang this morning and he proclaims these words. Prepare the way. Prepare the way. He's making an announcement again. Guess what? There's a king who is coming. There's one who's going to be ruling this one who had been born some 30 years before. Now is going to show up. So I want you to all open your hearts. Get ready for this king to come. And then Jesus comes along and you listen to the very words of Jesus. Jesus, like a herald from the father in heaven, comes down and he says, guess what? The time is fulfilled. God's kingdom is arriving. Turn back, repent. Believe this good news. Luke eleven twenty. when Jesus declares this, he said, it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. So if you see me working against unclean, evil powers and you see this evident, then you can know by that act and by the demonstration of the power of God, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's upon you. It's here. This is good news. And so Jesus, as you read about him, goes from province to province. Catch again the flavor of this. He's going from city to city, from town to town, like a herald. Issuing a public proclamation on behalf of the emperor of the entire universe, his father, that Israel's God was now in charge through him. God and his kingdom had arrived. It was right here. Now think about it. An announcement like this wasn't simply a proclamation, right? If you take what we just said, it was the start of a campaign. It was the beginning of a movement over those next three years. People were filled with hope when they saw the miracles and they were awed by this one who was called the anointed one, the ruler. And they were awed by his teaching, his authority, his wisdom, his power over the wind and the waves, his ability to heal illness, his ability to take unclean spirits that were causing great pain in people's lives and actually to bind them and to cast them away. Brought great hope because now they realized God was here and in charge. Now, with this as a backdrop in your mind, I want us to return to what we've been looking at in Matthew chapter 19. And in verses 16 through 30, and as I was looking at this, I realized we've been studying this gospel um, since April of 2010. We will get through it this year. I'd like to say that I had planned to do this on Christmas, but in reality is as I was going through the planning stuff over a number of weeks ago, I realized I inadvertently dropped this gospel out and when we pick up in January, so I thought this is a great time to just come back here and talk about hope that releases generosity because it's all about this rich, rich young ruler who had been putting his, his hope and his confidence in a sense in himself, this rich young ruler, which really if you look at scripture is more about a prominent person who is a leader in his culture who had, through his own resources, gained great wealth and great notoriety. And so this person is coming to Jesus. And here's this guy who's so resourceful, who who is provided for himself. You know, he's got he's, he's, his retirement's good. He's young. He's got all at his fingertips. He's, he's able to lead many people. He's recognized in his community, he probably serves in a position of leadership in his synagogue church. This guy's got it all. 
Now, again, the backdrop, he's watching this guy who calls himself the anointed one, this Jesus who's announcing that God's in charge coming in. And this Jesus demonstrates a life that he has not really seen before. This life that that that, that declares realities and truths that, that just awe his his understanding of what life is all about. And as he begins to hear and he begins to see the kind of things that Jesus does in his heart, he recognizes I got all this. But I'm still missing something. I, I just love his, his, his honesty. You see it in the first question here in chapter 19, verse 16. Now a young man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? You see, as resourceful as this guy was, knowing how to make a buck, being a leader in his field, I think when you listen to the question, you can, you can hear his confidence, which betrays his heart. And I love Jesus. If you, start, you just watch the way Jesus reacts with people. I learned so much. And Jesus is, is really wonderful. He, we, you know, people come with questions, but sometimes the question, in order to really help them understand what they're asking, you've got to ask more questions. And Jesus is one of these persons who listens, and, and, he, and he helps clarify and helps them understand and, and moves them to a place where maybe they can actually get the understanding they really want. Jesus, I think, didn't just come back with a quick answer. Jesus listened with curiosity to find out who this person is, which is a great lesson for all of us. I mean, if you're like me, you want to quickly tell, you want to quickly, you know, defend or whatever it might be. But Jesus just listens here. He says, um, the guy says to him, what must I do to obtain? You catch that? I, I don't think, you know, Jesus is really bright. I, I think as soon as he heard that, his, you know, his mind was going, ha, huh. do, obtain, I, hmm. And if he says, what good thing? must I do to get eternal life? Again, we've been talking about this word, this word over the last few weeks. We've been talking, and I think Peter Kastner did a great job when he talked about Zoe life. The, the Zoe life, he could have used the word bias, which means life physically. He's talking about Zoe life. The Zoe life is a word that contains two meanings. It talks about quality of life now, as well as the quality of life that will go quantity into the years to come. So when this guy is coming right now, I don't think he's asking merely about life out there sometime. He's asking about the very life that he sees Jesus himself living and he goes how do i get some of that it's the life that people are looking at you and 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 hopefully wondering by your own life it may be the thing you're even asking yourself right now i really want some of that i want more of that And, and and his his question betrays his heart how can i get the kind of life god has the kind of life i see in you jesus i'd like some of that you know, I got about a hundred bucks here. You know, you can just imagine his mind. What do I do? And so somehow he thought through his own efforts that um, he could earn this. Our pride always moves us to that place. We always think that somehow if we do what we need to do, we'll get what we want. And the deep quality of life, the kind of relational life that we share with other people are the kind of things that come through grace and reception. And, and, and it's the kind of things where we show up with who we are. And as we show up and understand things in ourselves, we grow up so we can begin to have that kind of mature relationship where you are in, in, in that gracious, loving, boundary-setting kind of life. And here this guy standing before, for the, before Jesus who represents God in, in his fullness. And he's saying, I want to get some of that. And he wants them to know this life is not about your generosity. It's not about your gifts. It's not about your abilities. The kind of life that you're asking that you want is really 
about God's generosity. It's about his ability. It's about his power to give. It's, it's a whole paradigm shift he wants this guy to see. And I love the progression that Jesus leads this man through because Jesus leads him to a place through the questioning, through the process, where he, he forces him to uh, kind of pins him down to say uncle and to give up. You know, you ever remember that when you did it with kids? You just tell you, now say uncle. That's really what Jesus kind of does. He actually brings this man um, to a place where he is um, pinned by the weight of his own inability. So Jesus clarifies the question first in verse 17. He says, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? What do, why do you ask me about good? Now, you kind of ask that. And you go, That's an interesting thing Jesus would say. Jesus replied then to him, there's only one who is good. He says, why do you ask me about goodness and generosity? And I love what Jesus does here. He, in a sense, says, even my hope as the son of God is in the only one who is good and generous. I think what he's, he's doing is what I have a, 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 one of the doctors who are, is in our congregation had shared with me once. He said, you know, sometimes people ask me, they say, Doc, um, how, how are you going to heal me? And he goes, he looks at him and goes, you know, I, I'm not going to heal you at all. He says, I'll, I'll give you the medicine and help apply it or I will do the surgical procedure. But you need to know that only God heals. I think that's almost in a sense what he's doing when he stands, as Jesus stands before him. He goes, I, you know what? Through me, the power of God flows. I have come to show you the kind of life that you and I can actually live. And through me, he says, the power of God flows. So you need to know that in the same way as the son does only that which the father does. When you call me good, you're really looking at one. It reflects the goodness of the only one, my father. And so he goes on and he makes this um, he makes the question even more clear. And, and he says in verse 17, here, buddy, if, if you want to enter this life, you want this life that I'm living, it's, it's simple, just obey the commandments. And uh, the guy is, you know, goes, well, which ones? I think it's an interesting response. Which ones? And, and so Jesus says, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you go through that, he's left out some commandments. And again, as I told you before, I think Jesus is incredibly bright, incredibly perceptive. He has an understanding of who this person is. He's probably been in the community ministering some. He probably knows who is who. Here is this rich, young, prominent ruler, probably one who was a part of the synagogue, probably one of the leaders in the synagogue. And so as a leader in the synagogue, he would have to have certain qualifications that he had met. And my guess is that when he gave those qualifications, those are all the same qualifications in many ways that you would want to be looking for. So someone who would lead. The synagogue, you know, our elders actually have qualifications. It's, that, it's as easy as that. And so Jesus lays these things out there. And I love the guy's response. Because Jesus, as he, he lists these things, he knows he's capable of keeping these things. So the young ruler is confident. He answers, no problem, I can do those. In fact, I'm already doing those. Look at it. He says, all these I've kept. Verse 20. Yet I love his honesty. He knows he's kept all these things, but he knows he still doesn't have this life that he wants, that he sees in Jesus. And so he looks at Jesus and he goes, you know, but what do I lack? Because what I want, I'm not having it, so I'm not experiencing. He says, you know, you can just look at this guy. He, he knows something missing. He's been religiously good. He attends their synagogue church. He probably leads a small group. He probably slept out at IOCP. He's probably given to our paved the way, generous gifts. 
And he's that kind of guy. Yet he still doesn't have the life that he sees in Jesus. So Jesus takes him one more step. And he gives him one commandment. That this guy is not capable. It's not capable of doing. He goes to verse 21. Jesus answers, if you want to be perfect, if you're looking to do this, if you want this kind of life that lives itself in the maturity, that moves into the kingdom of God, that experiences life the way that I am experiencing it, it's really pretty simple. There's only one thing you need to do. He says, look at this. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And I'm not talking about treasure necessarily even out there. He's talking about the kind of treasure that begins to build in your life now. Because remember, it's about the quality of life that goes on forever. Then come, follow me. I think this is a great, a great thing that Jesus does. He actually leads him to the edge of the cliff of his own self-security. Um, he actually puts him at the prepices where he's at the very end of himself, the end of his ability, and he points him to where he most hopes. He, he, he forces him to look through this series of conversation of statements and questions to the point where he has to look at what he is putting his own hope in, which is his own self-sufficiency. And standing face to face with his own self-sufficiency, he basically, Jesus, um, leads him to this place where he looks at it and goes, am I put my hope in God alone or am I going to put my hope in me and what I have? So in verse 19, chapter 19, verse 22, as you look at this passage, this isn't really about wealth. Now, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, his security was in his wealth. His security, really his wealth was just a, a symptom of a heart that was sufficient in itself. And what he was pointing him to is this. He says, you know what? What is it that you're putting all your hope in, in, in your ability to get what you think you need and what you want in life? And he says, the only way you're going to get what you most want is when you let it all go and you put all that in God. I love the way the message says this. He says, that was the last thing the young man expected to hear. And so crestfallen, all hope from his face just falls. He walked away. And, and catch this, I love this. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and he couldn't bear let them go. He was basically saying, you know what? I, this is, I, I can't let go and trust you with my entire life. I still need this. I've got to hold on to this. And um, his heart was still bound. Now, it's real easy for us to make this a big thing and kind of go, well, you know, is, is Jesus saying that I should go sell everything I have? I think the real lesson that Jesus wants everyone to understand, and we're going to get into this in just a moment more, is this. What is your hope in? I mean, it's a really good question for you to ask yourself. What is your hope in right now? As you come into this Christmas season, what is your hope in? Is it in your own resourcefulness, your own ability to, to get what you think you need? 
What is your hope in? Is your hope in, in the fact that somehow, in some way, it is through this relationship that you have, and if this relationship is somehow torn from your hands, then you're going to feel hopeless? Is it that your job provides for you and you're in this position, you're afraid if your job goes, you're going to feel hopeless? Or is it in some way that your kids will behave in a certain way, and if your kids just do this? Or, or maybe you come into the Christmas season, and your hope is that somehow, as you come into this Christmas season, you think of some of the people that are going to come into your Christmas life, you're thinking, well, how do I manage? What do I need to do in your own resources? What do I got to make happen to make? The... And God saying, where's your hope? And he calls you back to this place of hoping fully, totally in him. Where you, you let it go and say, God, what is it you what is it you want me to hope in? What is it in your heart? Well, the disciples, I think, are interesting because their faces kind of drop. As they hear this, I I love if you watch how the disciples respond, you get a good picture of what we're like. And it's really easy sometimes to read scripture and you look at the disciples and go, man, those idiots. They just don't get it. Well, what I love about this passage of scripture, you can really see yourself in this. They're thinking if this guy comes up, they're thinking, you've got to be kidding, Jesus. This guy is the perfect candidate. He's young. He's a leader. He's religious. He's he's involved in this community. He's he's very wealthy and resourceful. He's the kind of guy you want on the team. And Jesus, you know, strips it all down. And he says in, in, in verse 23 to them, then Jesus turned to his disciples and he says to him, I tell you the truth. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and note this, he says this once, but now he says, let me turn it again. And again, I tell you, he repeats it now differently, so they'll really grasp this. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some scholars will say that that, that idea of a rich man going, you know, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle re- refers to in that day around the city of Jerusalem, there was a gate and that gate was called the eye of the needle or the needle's eye. And that when a person would come to that gate with their camel and they would have all their stuff and the load of the stuff that they were bringing in, maybe to sell in goods and things like that in the market square, that they would have to take all that stuff off, have to carry it through piece by piece and eventually have the camel kind of go down on its knees in the sense that they had to strip themselves bare of everything to get through it. Well, I think it's just as easy to think of the eye of the needle and imagine a camel going through that. I love the imagery. I mean, I have trouble threading a needle with just a little piece of thread. Anybody gotten a camel through one yet? I mean, I, I, for, for me, I mean, I, I get this little piece of thread and, and now I have to put on special glasses to be able to even see the little eye of the needle. And now as I'm growing older, I have to kind of steady my hand to hold it from... And Jesus is trying to make it really simply clear. It's really tough. In fact, it's not just tough, it's near impossible. In fact, it is impossible for any person in their own resourcefulness to live in God's kingdom. Now, he's not saying you shouldn't be a resourceful person. He's not saying go ahead and use your gifts and, 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 and earn what you can earn and, 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 and live your life where you, you know, use your mind and your intelligence and plan and strategize and do those things. But he's saying any person who does that apart from God, who is relying on their life and their abilities and their resourcefulness, won't live in this space called the kingdom of God that is available for you right now. 
And you know what? For most of us, just like the disciples, to live in this space on a daily basis where you're in the rule where Jesus said, guess what? Here's the new announcement. I've come to tell you God's in charge and you can be under his charge. To live in that on a regular, consistent basis is a constant kind of throwing it all off in that sense and giving ourselves over and say, God, all that I have is yours. And I want to live in such a way that your rule in my life begins to direct my life so that as I walk out this life, I experience your life in me. That's what he was asking this guy to do. And the only way this guy could really, in his way to understand it and do that, was to, in that sense, Jesus said, you got to sell it all. you got to give it all away. Now, he doesn't make that claim necessarily on everybody, but he does make this claim on every person here. He says, I want you to know that if you want to live in the resources of God, you want the power of the Holy Spirit to live in you. You invite him into your life and you say, Holy Spirit of God, I want you to come into my life. I want you to sow. Not only have you have I received you and accepted you and I understand your spirit has come to me, but I want your spirit to fill me on a regular daily basis and say, God, here I am before you and I'm going to live in such a way that all that I have, that all that I am, that all that is around me will be yours. And I just, in a sense, I sell it. I put it out here and say, God, this is for you to deal with. And when you do this, your life becomes his life. His generosity begins to flow through you because it's his stuff. His ability to forgive is yours. That's what I love about this passage. He says, you know, when you live this way in this life right now and you walk in this space and you, you make this daily commitment, moment by moment commitment, which is the kind of commitment that brings maturity and character into your life, where you're no longer trying to blame other people and you're trying to get these things out here to change so you can enjoy life more and the circumstances are better. But when your heart is changed internally, the character is changed. He builds in your soul the ability to hold his spirit in such a way that he changes who you are so the things around you begin to change. That's a powerful life. That's available to every person here. There's a space every person here can live in if they want to. And it's not by what you can obtain. It's not by what you can do. It's not in any way as if Jesus is some way going, well, you know, if you, you have more Bible studies, you do these things. All these disciplines are good. But it's not that he pats you on the back so that as you're doing these things, you're somehow obtaining his life. He is basically saying the life is yours by this simple choice. Would you come into my heart? Would you lead me? Because it's so easy for me to lead myself. Greatest gift you're going to get this Christmas is just open your heart and say that to God. You get that gift every moment of every day. You can walk in the space under the power and the presence of the kingdom of God to the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can see this Holy Spirit begin to work in your life so that when you come against things, he begins to change your attitude. He begins to change your heart. And as your heart begins to change, he also again begins to change things out here. And those things that don't change, he gives you the grace to live with. That's a wonderful way to live. That's what I want to live in. That's what I think this guy saw. But he might be like you. And you look at it and you go, the demand is just... Way too high. I, I really like holding on to the reins of all the stuff going on in my life. I like being the guy with the resources. I'm really pretty convinced that I got a pretty sharp mind that I can do most of this stuff. Pretty convinced that I can live my life in such a way that I can get by and have a pretty decent marriage when God said, you know what, you could have a great marriage. 
You could move more fully into my kingdom and the space of my kingdom in relationship with other people, in relationship to those you work with. And so here's this guy walking away sad and the disciples are going, you got to be kidding me. And uh, I love their response in verse 25. Because they're afraid that Jesus has just blown it. He's made it this demand of God so inexplicably high that no human being can do it. Think about it. He has set the bar so high none of us can jump over it. And that's what they're saying to him. The disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished and asked. Now, you have to understand that they're asking the question after they themselves have given up all. You would think that's a foolish question they're going to ask right now, because you think they'd be going, you're right, Jesus. This is right on. That's what everybody's got to do. It's just like us. Look at us. We're the holy righteous ones. We're the ones walking in the space of the kingdom. And he's going, no, they don't get it still. They've given up everything, but they still don't get what they've really given up. What they haven't fully given up is their hearts fully to God. And so he, they're saying the, high, the demands are so high. When the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. You've blown it. One of the best candidates. You know, if we want a guy in this church, don't you want to? I mean, think of it. You know, we live in this area around here with some pretty resourceful people. They're leaders and they, they know how to make money and they know how to, you know, engage people in relationships and influence people. And, and, and you know, aren't those the kind, we want to fill the church with those kind of people. No. That is not the goal of the Lord Jesus Christ in this church. Not that he doesn't want those kind of people. What he wants first and priority is the fact he wants every person's heart that says, you know what? I understand that God created me and that this God loves me and that every person, whether you're rich or poor, has a value in the eyes of God. And every person in this place, whether you're rich or poor, has abilities that God can use when you surrender to him. Every one of you have the ability to serve him to touch another person's life for eternity. And it's not about what you can do and you can obtain and all that you can get. You know, like when these little kids were up here, I just love watching those kids do the scripture and prayer. Every once in a while you watch them or you watch Macy when she's saying and they look at their parents in their parents' eyes. And they're not looking at their parents' eyes, hoping their parents are going, good job, I'm going to love you more. Way to be, we're going to love you more. because They're looking at them because they are looking at them to be affirmed of the very love that's already in their heart. So when you're walking with God, it's not kind of like, oh, God, look, I'm really in your word. I'm coming to church on Sundays. He's thrilled you're doing that. But if it's you're thinking somehow that he's going as you look into his eyes, going, good job. I really love you more for that. That's just a bunch of baloney. God loves you as much as he could love you right now. When you look into his eyes, he just wants to affirm you, even in your own sinfulness and your own rebellious heart. He loves you. And the reason he loves you is to move you out of those ways so that you can experience more fully his love and walk more fully in his love. But it's not about obtaining and getting his love. So if you're in this place and you're saying, God, I so badly, like this rich young guy, want what you have. He says, it's yours. And here's the really good news. You don't have to obtain it. You don't have to give money to get it. You don't have to show up a bunch of times to get it. All you have to do is show up today and just say, God, I want this. I want you to intervene in my life. I want you to forgive me for the way I want to always leave my own life. And I ask you to come in right now. And you can do that in your heart right this very moment. There's all kinds of traditions, ways that people do it. You know, you raise your hands, come forward. You can just right now just say, Jesus, I want you in my heart and my life. And he will just like that come in. And so... 
I love this passage of Scripture, as you can tell. It's so out of reach for all of us, and the disciples knew it. And Jesus is going, you guys, guess what? I am so glad you're standing at the edge of your own ability, because when you stand at the edge of your own ability, you also stand at the very edge where you step into the ability of God to do the kind of things in your heart and life you could never imagine or ask or conceive. And so he, he, he's so excited. So in verse 26, Jesus looks at them and he says, as they're standing at the edge, his disciples who get all this stuff, he's going, I think maybe they get it. And if they get it, they could lead other people to get it. And if you get it, you could lead people around you to get it. It's not about you. It's not about what you possibly can do. It's all about what's impossible and what God can do. And so he looks at him and he goes, guys, with man, what you're talking about, what we're talking about is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Where's your hope today? you enter into this Christmas season, some of you I know, it's, you're moving into a place where you're, you're feeling lonely. You're, you know, people who've been once in your life have, are no longer there. Either they're moved away or they've, God's taken some of them on to be with Him. Some of you are moving into this place, you're moving to Christmas, and it, and it highlights that, that loneliness or it highlights the fear because people are giving things and you're in a position because of the work situation you're in or because you don't even have work. You can't give the kind of things you'd like to give. And so you kind of, where's your hope? Your hope, my prayer is your hope is in God alone. So in Matthew 27, 29, it's kind of neat because it ends this way. Because Jesus wants these guys to know, um, because Peter goes, you know, you know, we've left everything to follow you. He still, I don't know if they still fully get it. You know, uh, we, 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 we did what you told the guy to do. And Jesus going, yeah, they're still getting close. Oh, father, have me have patience. Can you imagine Jesus? As he prays that for me and for you. He goes, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? There's still that, you know, is there anything, you know, we've done all this. Is there anything? Oh, there's so much in this life, guys. There's so much in this life that Jesus turns him and says, I tell you the truth. Here's the truth, too. I am a God who loves a reward. So to these 12, he says that the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits in his throne, when the kingdom actually fully comes in all its fullness, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he looks at you, every one of us, and he says, everyone who has left homes, houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or children, or fields for my sake, you're going to receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now, what I love about this, just three practical little things. Hope leads to generosity when you read these words, because the truth is this. It's about God's generosity, not yours. When you look at it and, you know, it says a woman gave two pennies and gave out of sacrifice, gave all she had. And God looked at it and said, I love that generous heart. The reason that person can do that is because they believe in their heart in this generous God who's able to provide for them. And so when God talks to you about being generous, whether it's in being forgiving for people, whether it means serving with your time or whether it means um, with your your money, your financial resources, I want you to seriously think about this. And financial resources, I think one of the reasons it's brought up here is because that is one of the most difficult things for people to trust God in. Money is power. If we have power, we feel secure. So what he's basically saying is what's your hope in? Do you understand that if God is generous and it's his generosity that you're leaning upon, then you can be generous. 
The, the, the point in all this is your only responsibility is to listen to the father. Not necessarily about your ability to give. You're supposed to listen to the father. And in, in that process, it means not being stupid. But, you know, sometimes faith looks really stupid, though, too, doesn't it? I mean, how many people build arcs? How many people leave the country they're living in and go wander to some place they don't know to go? So I'm not telling you to do something stupid. I'm just telling you to listen to the Father. And when the Father speaks to your heart, then do it. And if He's calling you to do something, and it's bigger than what your own you you can see and imagine, He's the one who's generous. You might be at the edge of your own inability, and He's calling you to step into His ability. Hope leads to generosity. And the thing that's really neat about this, it's not about your wealth. It's about his maturity. It's about becoming mature. Generosity is always, always with maturity. Think about it for a second. When you look at Scripture and you think about this, it, it says at one point that Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. How many people believe that? Okay. Let's just, you don't need hands. Okay. Let me put it this way. When you go to Scripture, how many times do you think Jesus said that in the Gospels? How many times do you think he said it in one of the Gospels? Is it your question? He didn't say it once in any of the Gospels, not recorded in any of the Gospels, which makes me wonder how many things Jesus said that wasn't recorded in the Gospels. Only place this was recorded was in Acts. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Paul is standing there and he says these words. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, what he said, it's also more blessed to give than to receive. That was probably such a well-known thing that Jesus said in every place he went that it became so, so, so um, common among the followers of Jesus that they just repeated it again and again. But we never find it in the Gospels. And when you think about that phrase, it's a difficult one. Tell your kids. Some of you have kids or grandkids. Tell them this year, this year what we're going to do is we're not going to, you're not receiving presents because it's more blessed to give than to receive that's a statement of maturity. You, you, you have to understand that calls for change in character. That means that you begin to get joy out of what you see happen through what you've given. I think about that in the sense of a kind of a gauge of maturity. How, I, even myself, I, how many of us, or me included, are excited about a new Lexus or BMW than a well dug in Africa? What gives you more joy? What do you value more, box seats at the big game or boxing meals at some homeless shelter? I mean, those are all the things that gate. Because maturity is about what you see happening in someone else's life. As you're older and you give, you kind of go, isn't that so cool? I think of it, I was talking to, um, to uh, Shannon Bry with her daughter Macy, who's saying up here, and I said, you know, it's really fun to yourself do those things. And, but when you watch your kids, isn't it the joy that you see, the joy that you see when you give, when you see something in someone else, that's what generosity, it, it calls for maturity. It, it's not wealthy people. And studies show you again and again that the people who are the most generous are not the wealthy. They're usually those who are poor because they've experienced, they've had the pain of not having. And when they see someone else who doesn't have, the pain is so close that they will do what they can to help meet those needs. And I think one of the things that will help you remain generous is when you come to this place of your own brokenness, you understand. But by God, I would be in this place, that place of brokenness, which God calls us to again and again, where we we see that it's not about ourselves, puts us in a place where we can give to others. And the last thing I just want you to know is in the scripture, um, Jesus says, basically, your investment now um, will bring joy later. 
He just wants you to realize this. And he says, you know, this is not about three and a half to five percent increase. This is not about even in our markets, a whopping 10 to 20 percent increase. When you give from a generous heart, he says you can expect 100 times, which means you have to believe like little Macy saying that home isn't here, but it's just a few minutes away that we'll be with him. Now, I realize for some of you, you're a few minutes closer than I am. And I realize some of you are younger. You're thinking, I got years. But can I tell you, a year in, in God's eyes is like a thousand years. A day is a thousand years. Do you know that how quickly the time is going to pass? So when God gives you, you know, he says, be generous. And then out of maturity, you grow into this character and then you give because you give, you know, this expectation. This is hope leads to generosity because you're convinced what lies ahead. Do you believe that this what you give right now, you're going to get real soon? I love this. Uh, C.S. Lewis makes this statement. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll just get neither. Jesus looks at everybody here today. He says, follow me and you get me. Follow me and you get me. You get me with all my life in this space in the kingdom of God today. And you'll walk in that space forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we just want to come and adore you and worship you. You are so generous. You are so good. You have called us to to let go of the things that bind us, to let go of the things that we think we can control and to just open our hearts to the control of your Holy Spirit. And I pray for that right now in this body, in this church, in individuals' lives. Spirit of God, we invite you to be the one to lead and to rule in our hearts and lives. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.